0: Hello, my name is Ruth Lehmann, and I am a professor at NYU Medical School, and I'm also an investigator of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. Today, I'm going to tell you about germ cells. When egg and sperm meet, they make a fertilized egg cell. And at that point, a really important decision has to take place. And that is the decision between eternal life or death, between germ cells and soma. At the very early stages of embryogenesis, germ cells are set aside, and they have the potential to give rise to a whole nother organism. All the somatic cells, which give rise to our body, will eventually die. So, germ cells, while not important for the survival of the organism, they are absolutely essential for the survival of the species, and they are the site where evolution takes place as well. So, what I want to tell you about is how germ cells are really um, associated with germ granules, and how these germ granules form, and how they're essential for the function of germ cells. I will also tell you, in the second part, of how we actually achieve this uh, dichotomy of the germline and the soma by setting them aside, and also by inhibiting each other. And finally, in the third part, I will talk about mitochondria, which are only uh, transmitted through the female germline. So, the term germplasm was initially termed by uh, August Weissman. What he was referring to was that only the germ cells carried the potential for inheritance. And the... uh, the elements of inheritance. He was sort of referring more to chromosomes, um, but um, we left with the term. And also, uh, he was studying organisms which have the classical germplasm determinants, and uh, so he mixed up what's in the cytoplasm and what's in the DNA. Today, we know that there are two parts of how germ cells are set aside. two mechanisms: um, one mechanism is the germ plasm mechanism, uh, which is a mechanism by which maternally inherited proteins uh, are set aside at a certain location within the egg or early embryo, and those contain uh, the instructive information which then will lead to um, the differentiation of the cells which inherit that germ plasm into germ cells. The other mechanism, which is actually much more common and used by more animals, is an inductive mechanism. And that mechanism is actually not so different from all the mechanisms that are used to specify the other uh, cells um, uh, in the body. And in this case... Um, signals from the extraembryonic uh, e- ectoderm are signaling to the embryo proper to uh, determine germ cells. And so if we just focus on the germ plasm mode of inheritance, there are a number of organisms which inherit germ plasm and uh, go uh, follow this mode. And those are uh, in insects, uh, Drosophila melanogaster, uh, in nematodes, Cenorobtitis elegans, and the frog Xenopus levis. And in all of these cases, maternal products are deposited in the egg, and those maternal products will determine where the germ cells form. So, these are classical determinants of a developmental fate. And the proof for that kind of determinative ability of the cytoplasm uh, was uh, shown uh, by transplantation experiments. And so, if you use the cytoplasm of an embryo, where this germplasm had been deposited at the posterior pole during oogenesis, and... which normally would give rise to the germ cells later on at the posterior pole here in the drosophila embryo, if now instead that germplasm was transplanted... and these were experiments done by Ilmense and Mahowald, and the result was that this germplasm then was able to induce cells that had the germ cell fate. So, this clearly established the germ plasm as the determinant for the germ cell fate. However, as I told you, there's another mode. And this may actually be the more common mode of how germ cells are initially set aside. And in this case, just like most other cells in the body, the germ cells are set aside by an inductive event, where two cells signal to each other, and those cell signals then uh, specify fates. And in this case, in the mouse embryo, but similarly in the human embryo, and in many other embryos, um, the extraembryonic ectoderm sends a signal, um, the bone marrow promoting factor 4 and 8, uh, to the epiblast, which is the embryo proper, and then the cells, which are just at the border at the interface, they will become primordial germ cells. So, the way it was determined that in the case of induction um, there isn't a determinant which has been deposited in the egg and uh, that thereby tells us where the germ cells form, the following experiment was carried out. Uh, cells in the epiblast at... Uh, very close to the extraembryonic ectoderm will make mesoderm or primordial germ cells, while the cells uh, at the bottom of the epiblast will give rise to the neural ectoderm. And so, if we now transplant cells, which would normally give rise to the neural ectoderm, to the new position of where they get the influence from the extraembryonic ectoderm, these cells then gave rise to mesoderm and PGCs. And that tells us that uh, there is an inductive event and that there wasn't something pre-localized in the egg which told the cells what fate to become. Despite these differences among the way germ cells are specified. And this has often been taken as, perhaps, that um, germ cells are specified in very different ways, in different organisms, and so maybe their nature is very separate, In uh, their ways how um, they act are very different. And, indeed, uh, this idea was also... Um, supported by the fact that there isn't a master regulator transcription factor for germ cells. So, for muscle cells, for example, in every organism studied, there is a MyoD-like transcription factor which determines muscle cells. That is lacking in germ cells. However, there is something that all germ cells share, and that are germ granules. And they are the hallmarks of all germ germ cells, irrespective of whether they're formed by... The inductive mechanism, or by the germ plasm mechanism, the determinant mechanism. And um, here are just a few examples. So here are the germ granules in drosophila, and I will tell you much more about those. And then you also see nuage in mouse sperm and the Balbiani body in mouse oocytes. And those are specific granules which are only found in germ uh, cells. And what is also important and why um, I would like to refer to the germ granules as a hallmark is uh, that there's a lot of conservation between these granules uh, in germ cells. And so that suggests, actually, that there is a common... Um, origin, and uh, that there is actually something very similar uh, between germ cells. And so, one is these nuclear... Uh, ribonuclear particles, which I already mentioned, and I will tell you much more about those. Um, but then there's also the aspect that germ cells uh, are really um, very... Uh, very important function for germ cells is RNA regulation, so how RNAs are localized, translate the stability, and the RNA processing, which is an important mechanism which occurs in the germline to defend off transposable elements. And then finally, and that's maybe the most convincing argument for saying that there is something common about... among all germ cells, uh, are the RNA regulatory proteins, which are conserved. For example, the VASA protein, which is an ATP-dependent helicase, has been used broadly to identify germ cells in pretty much every species. Other RNA-binding proteins or RNA-binding protein-interacting proteins, like Tudor and the Argonaute protein family, are similarly conserved and all expressed throughout germ cells in all species that are studied. And so, I will be focusing, and this is um, really the work that's going on in my lab, is in the germline of trosophila. And so, I want to tell you something first about the germline life cycle and then focus on certain aspects of that life cycle. And so, let's look at um, the early embryo here, um, which um, develops within 24 hours into a larvae. But when it is late, it already has a, a lot of information because of the aspects of the... Um, uh, that the mother provided... because of the proteins that the mother has provided. And so, um, this is a... F- pretty much a freshly laid egg. And what you can see, it is... Um, we're seeing here um, RNA being uh, localized at the posterior pole. Uh, and uh, you can see the germ plasm there very clearly. This germplasm, then, will give rise to the germ cells... Um, only after uh, about two hours, and I will tell you more about this later, Um, then these germ cells will migrate to the uh, somatic part of the gonad, and there, these primordial germ cells will... Um, start to differentiate into male or female um, germline. And in the male and in the female endrosophila, they will um, associate with a somatic niche and will continue to make egg and sperm throughout uh, the life of the fly. Also... With this life cycle, what's important is that mitochondria are um, passed on through the germline. Indeed, they are enriched in the germ plasm, and then are carried on uh, through the female germline alone. So now, uh, in this um, first part uh, of uh, telling you more about specific research on germ granules, I want to tell you about some really uh, exciting um, new way of how to look at germ granules. And that is to uh, understand uh, that they are membranous granules, which we knew for a long time from EM analysis. But now we have a better idea how they could be physically come together because a granule without membranes, is kind of hard to imagine how it could be organized. And so, we're starting to understand, and we start to inquisit, the organization of these granules. And then, we hope, by understanding the organization better, we will actually understand their function better, which is really an RNA regulation, as I said, a hallmark of germ cells. So, I will tell you about three... Parts of germ granules. I will first go back a little bit in history and tell you about the genetics and assembly of the germ granules. I will then tell you about the biophysical properties which determines that the germ granules are indeed membraneless granules. And then I will tell you um, how the RNA is organized within those granules. So, um, first, uh, I already showed you this image of an embryo. This is actually an in-situ hybridization for the nanos RNA. And you can see the germ plasm, uh, where the RNA is enriched. And then you can also see uh, RNA actually throughout the embryo. You can then um, see the germ plasm here in a, a... more highlighted. And you can actually kind of gauge that there's a granular... there's spaces and and more dense fluorescence. And here's an EM picture, then, of a single granule. um, And uh, and that is the cytoplasmic germ granule, a hallmark for the fly germ plasm. And what is in these granules? So, um, many experiments... looking at localization, immunoprecipitation, have led to identify many proteins which are in these granules. And as you can see, when you look at this list of uh, kind of types of genes which are found within the germ plasm and in the germ granules, they're all RNA regulatory genes. But what is specific for these granules, because there are a lot of these membraneless granules also in other cells than germ cells, and they have many of these same components. But what's specific are these germ granule assembly proteins and the pi RNA associated proteins. And the pi RNA associated proteins, again, are required for transposable element control, and I will not be able to tell you more about this at this point, but I will tell you a lot about the germ granule assembly now. So, first of all, again, when we look just at this picture, where we see sort of uh, blank and uh, filled and less filled uh, spots, we can ask uh, the main components of the germ plasm in the fly, which are really the initiator of granule formation, is the gene Oscar, um, which then uh, recruits the protein Vasa. And we can ask the question of how much oscar and how much vasa are in the granules, or, besides, in those blank spots, because that gives us an idea of how the germ plasm is really structured. Do we... Can we focus on the granule, or should we focus more on the whole plasm? And so, yes, you can see is that the predominant amount of the proteins are uh, in the granules, and only a very small part is actually in uh, the interspace. And that's not so different from what's in the rest of the embryo, which will give rise to the soma with its deadly fate. So, now let's look at the genetics and assembly. Um, the critical gene here is Oscar, and I have to tell you a story about Oscar because um, when I was a graduate student, I identified Oscar, and I named it according to a character in uh, Günter Grass's book, The Tindrum. And uh, you may want to read the book to figure out why I named Oscar Oscar. But the clue here is that it has a patterning defect. They're really short, these Oscar embryos. They come from homozygous mutant mothers. And so the first was their polarity effect. But what's really important about Oscar is that there is no germ cells. No germ cells are formed in these Oscar mutant embryos. And when I say Oscar mutant embryos, I mean actually embryos which came from mothers that we're not making Oscar protein. Remember that there's this germplasm which is made during oogenesis. So, um, interestingly, Oscar is quite quite a novel protein, um, but it is very important as an assembly factor for the granules. And it is possible that these kinds of um, uh, proteins which are structural... Um, may uh, be existing in different organisms uh, and uh, that they may not always be easily um, recognizable on the basis of their protein composition, of their amino acid composition, because of the nature of how membraneless granules are uh, composed. And I will uh, come back to that again. So, what do we know about Oscar? We know a lot about Oscar after um, I characterized and identified Oscar initially. Um, a postdoc then in my lab, Anna Fursi, um, really took on to understand many of the aspects of Oscar regulation. Uh, and she is, has now her own group at EMBL for many years. So, Oscar affects, uh, is, is, is regulated by splicing. Its RNA is transported. Uh, during orogenesis into the oocyte, then as it gets localized to the posterior pole of the o- oocyte, and this is critical, it is translated. And when it is translated, then it recruits all these other components and makes the germ plasm. And then something really peculiar happens later in oogenesis, and that is that all the contents of the nerve cells, which are these feeder cells to the oocyte, they are dumped into the oocyte, and then the oocyte does this kind of washing machine swirling. And so, many other components, in particular the RNAs, which are components of the germ plasm, get stuck to the germ plasm at that point, and we'll talk about that later. And that is when the germ plasm effectors are entrapped and localized. So, OSCAR uh, structure uh, has been uh, characterized uh, both in my lab in collaboration with grooming Zhu uh, and then also uh, in, in a Fursi's lab. And we know now that there is a very nice structure of OSCAR um, where it really... we know also how it interacts with the VASA protein and that that is a direct interaction. Um, and then this complex, so dimer of OSCAR, dimer of VASA... with VASA, um, they recruit other components. And um, one other uh, complex is the complex between Tudor and aubergine, uh, another uh, RNA-binding proteins. And aubergine has an important role in the piRNA pathway. And so, these are... these proteins are all assembled together at the posterior pole upon the localization of Oscar. What I will be focusing on a little bit is this wiggly lines in here because those are unstructured domains which with structural biology um, you can actually not determine and so we don't know how they actually behave and uh, we will um, think about this more when we're thinking about uh, how these uh, membranous uh, granules form. But first, um, why do I say OSCAR is the major gene which can assemble the whole germplasm? And that's from this experiment, uh, which ended a long time ago, again, when she was in my lab. And uh, what we did there, we, we decided to say, okay, if OSCAR has all this power let's put it at a new location and see if at that new location it can actually assemble the germplasm. And so, what we did is, since OSCAR is localized through its 3' UTR to the posterior pole, we used the localization signal from the Bicoid gene, which normally localizes to the anterior pole. And so, we just put that on Oscar protein, and we were really lucky because Oscar got localized, the RNA got localized to the anterior pole, and the protein got translated at the anterior pole, and Oscar did it all. It assembled all the other components, and that led to... Uh, making an embryo which had, now, two posterior ends. And this comes back to the uh, loss of uh, polarity um, in the mutants. But most important for what we're talking about, it had germ cells at the anterior pole, as well as the posterior pole, which is the normal localization. So, this established OSCAR as kind of the equivalent of the germplasm. The interesting part is, it would have been very, very hard to find anything like Oscar by biochemical methods. It really needed the genetics to identify the genes which were components of the germplasm, and then to do genetic experiments, which really told us how this whole uh, system is put together and how the different proteins are starting to interact with each other. we have these proteins which are assembled and obviously there are many more. I'm just showing a few of the proteins because we know these are sort of the central ones and these are also the germ plasm and germline specific proteins. The major role, then, is of these proteins to assemble what we call effector RNAs. And there are about 200 RNAs in a very generous uh, measurement that are specifically enriched at the posterior pole because of the action of these proteins. And these effector RNAs are really what is giving us the function of the germplasm, because... They are important for germ cell formation and specification, and I will tell you uh, more about this in the second uh, part of the lecture. Um, They are important for germ cell migration, and they are important for transposable element defense. So, the proteins provide a structure, we think, uh, on which these RNAs assemble, and then on which these RNAs can function, and that means translation. And so, and now I want to turn to tell you more about the biophysical properties of the granules as membraneless granules. And um, for this, uh, I, I again will step back a little bit and give you some background of what now is known about these membraneless granules and how they um, uh, are formed. And so, um, as I mentioned before, there are actually a lot of these kinds of membraneless granules. And so... Um, I remember when I was a starting biology student, I sort of thought of the cytoplasm as a liquid. Um, then I realized it was much more dense, so then it was like a gummy bear. And now um, we know there are all these structures in there that can form. And so it becomes more like, I don't know... A chocolate chip cookie or something. Um, So, so the the cytoplasm has much more structure than what we thought before. And some of these granules um, can form at different conditions. So, for example, there are the stress granules, uh, which form only under stress situations. Um, Some of the granules are clearly involved in RNA regulation, like the neuronal granules. And then there are also some of these granules which are in the nucleus, Uh, The nucleolus, for example, is a very um, uh, well-known granule that is found in the nucleus. And uh, and then, uh, here is an example from C. elegans, um, and that is uh, the germ granules of C. elegans. And they're also in the cytoplasm. And so, the idea is that these membranous granules initially form by demixing from a solution... And so, if you imagine you have all these proteins in a solution, and now you increase the concentration, they can demix. And they can demix, for example, when the temperature changes or um, pH changes or other um, uh, conditions. And so, now the concentration of a particular molecule is much higher in this condensate than in the outside uh, environment. And the idea is that what happens is, as these um, liquids condensating um, in the granule, that they first, in the granule, can have even the appearance of being quite liquid, which means that they are... um, can move in and out freely into the condensate, but they can also attain more structured organizations, where they then uh, become more solid and more organized, and perhaps even rigid, where they're no longer able um, to dissolve... And that could be an explanation for the amyloid uh, bodies that uh, we find in Alzheimer's patients. So, um, what are the conditions that favor or influence granule formation? So, I already told you, high concentration, low temperature, low salt, also crowding agents... And all kinds of protein modifications, which often are called also multivalency of these uh, these proteins. But there's also specific proteins which are more likely to form these kinds of um, condensates. And uh, a lot of this is figured out in vitro. Um, Of course, uh, I will be telling you about our experiments in the embryo, trying to understand uh, uh, whether these biophysical properties are also true for our germ granule components. But what is important is that um, they often have uh, unstructured domains, disordered regions, um, low-complexity domains, that means the same amino acid being repeated many times, and... In many cases, they have RNA-binding domains or the ability to bind RNA, and often it is that ability to bind RNA which allows them to undergo this phase transition. So, here's the classical example Um, There was uh, first... uh, where where it was first proposed that these membranous granules uh, are uh, indeed uh, uh, kind of... of a liquid composition. Um, And uh, this was carried out by Cliff Brangren when he was in Tony Hyman's lab. And what you're seeing here is the PIGL1 protein labeled with... uh, tagged with a GFP uh, fluorescent uh, protein. And uh, you will see this is the embryo... the one-cell embryo of C. elegans. And uh, what you will see is that the granules in the front part of the embryo and the anterior part of the embryo will dissolve, and they will assemble into larger particles in the posterior half, and that will be the posterior cell, and that cell will actually give to the... give rise to the germline in C. elegans. So, let's play the movie, and you can see how... These granules are now associating. You could probably see here where there are some granules fusing and merging. And so that suggested that there was a liquid kind of um, property to them. They're behaving like liquid droplets. And that means proteins are going in and out easily, and they can merge, sort of like um, putting um, oil into water. There are some ways of how we can assess the uh, liquid nature or the fluidity of the molecules within the membrane compared to um, the outside. And so, um, two fluorescent methods are used for this, recovery after photobleaching, where we photobleach the granule and then ask how easy um, is the uh, content of the surrounding uh, now filling in and uh, providing, then, fluorescent activity. And the other assay is called Fluorescent Loss in Photobleaching. And here, we are... um, using uh, photobleaching all the time at a particular spot, and if molecules from the outside are merging in, we would expect that then we're losing fluorescence from the outside because they are um, filling in and are getting bleached. And so, uh, both of these uh, aspects uh, can actually be visualized when we're going now into uh, the drosophila germ cells. And so... um, I want to just tell you something about the cytoplasmic and nuclear granules in Drosophila before I show you the experiment uh, using um, uh, uh, FRAP to uh, show the uh, mobility of the proteins in the uh, granules. So, in the... during embryogenesis, we have these granules, which are formed by Oscar and Vasa and contain RNA. Then, as the germ cells form, we actually find particular granules in the nucleus which are specific for the germline. And then, later during uh, oogenesis, we have another type of granules, and you can sort of see this surrounding each of the nurse cell nuclei, and those are called nuage. And so, here's the experiment where we are asking if we're bleaching germ granules in Drosophila, can they recover? And as a comparison, I'm showing you the results that were obtained for PIGL1. Indeed, we did these experiments because we wanted to repeat the experiments that Cliff brangwen did, um, so we knew we were actually measuring the right thing. And so, as you can see, um, this would be how much fluorescence there was before the bleaching. And Pickle 1 um, recovers about 80%. So there's a large mobile fraction which can move into the granule after um after the photobleaching. However, when we do this experiment with Oscar, there is a mobile fraction, but there's also quite a a large fraction, about 60%, which is not mobile. So, we would say that probably the Oscar granules are not as liquidy as the pigle granules, and that there is perhaps more structure to them. And so, how can we get to the structure of the Oscar granules? And one experiment uh, that got us to the structure of the granules was sort of almost um, a coincidence. We wanted to know... and. Th- something about the two forms of OSCAR. There's a long form and a short form. The short form does all the germplasm assembly that I was telling you about. And the long form has been a little bit of a mystery to us. And so we thought, let's just express it in tissue culture cells and see what it does. And what we found was that it was kind of everywhere in the cytoplasm. But then, as a control, we thought, let's also express the short OSCAR in the... Tissue culture cells, and there was the big surprise, because short Oscar in Schneider cells, which are Drosophila cells, or in hec two ninety three cells, which are mammalian cells, was on its own, without any germ plasm, without any other Drosophila proteins, able to form granules. And so this was really an exciting moment because it really told us that we can now study uh, the biophysical properties in a tissue culture system where we can add components, track components. What was important for the nuclear localization is actually the nuclear localization signal, and that sits in that domain, the wiggly domain that I was describing earlier when I showed you the structure of Oscar in that disordered structure. However, granule formation of short Oscar is not dependent on one particular region. We can delete each one of these regions and still form granules. Only when we delete the nuclear localization element will the granules now form in the cytoplasm. So, what can these granules do? Indeed, what was really um, nice to show us also that they had really uh, a biological... Um, properties which uh, resemble those properties it has in vivo, um, was that we asked uh, VASA GFP, which normally is associated uh, with OSCAR, but uh, when we express it in uh, these tissue culture cells, it does not go into the nucleus. It actually barely forms granules. But when we expressed VASA and OSCAR... We got a co localization and Oscar dragged Vasa into the nucleus. So we're still seeing the same kinds of properties that we're seeing in vivo. So, what are these granules? Indeed, Mahowald, many years, in the 70s, when he was doing an EM reconstruction of the germ plasm and first told us about germ granules, he observed these nuclear granules, and uh, he showed them. And the granules that we're making in tissue culture cells have the same size. They're actually quite big. They can be um, over a micrometer big. And, uh, and uh, they have... they look kind of... Um, uh, hollow, and if we do a serial reconstruction, we realize that they are not a donut, which kind of you may... Accept, but they are really a cream-filled donut. And uh, so, they are um, a hollow sphere. Or we don't know. Hollow is perhaps not the right word, because we don't know what's in the middle, but it's electron-less dense. So, really, there is an organization to these granules. They are not just a concentrate, which comes together, but they're organized. And so, um, when we l- compare the germ granules in C. elegans to Drosophila, and in general think about the properties of uh, granules of these membraneless granules, there are a number of properties. First of all, is that they're pretty much round and membraneless, and that's true for both. Um, they have a self-driven assembly, and I just showed you um, uh, the uh, proof for that. They can demix from solution. I showed you that too with the FRAP experiments. Um, they are much increased in concentration and. We'll talk about that a little bit later, also. Um, they stable once in phase, and uh, we know this uh, with additional experiments that we've carried out uh, for the uh, nuclear granules in particular. They're multivalent. I told you that there are multiple domains which co- um, which... Uh, are required for the granule formation, including um, the RNA binding domain of OSCAR, and their stoichiometry is not defined. So, while I was telling you that OSCAR dimers and VASA dimers form with VASA to make a a heterodimer, um, the other stoichiometry of the other proteins which are in the germplasm are probably um, not as clearly defined, and that is another hallmark of uh, germ granules. So, now, finally, uh, my, the last part of my presentation will be um, to really look at how the RNs, RNAs are organized. And here, just like um, what I was just telling you, uh, a major part is really uh, that um, these granules are not just uh, uh, jelly. They... 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 that... that, that um, uh, demixed. They have a structure. And we will see this in particular when we're looking at RNA localization. And that was quite a surprise. And so, there are RNAs um, in the... in the germ... uh, in the germ And here you see, uh, for example, Vasa GFP. This big one is one of those nuclear granules. You see how much smaller the cytoplasmic granules are. And then you see RNAs associated with these granules. And so, um, the... germplasm assembles during oogenesis, as I told you. Then we have that rotation uh, uh, during uh, the uh, dumping of the nerve cells. And during that time, these RNAs localize that are important for all these different functions. And uh, Tatiana Trek, a postdoc in my lab, really... Um, Uh, took it to herself to do a much more quantitative analysis and look at where these germ granules, uh, RNAs, are actually localized. And so, what you see from this image, and this image is actually not an image of proteins, but RNAs, and you can pretty well see that there is sort of a line where you see much more dense area of uh, RNAs than in the rest of the embryo, which is the soma. And so, um, what uh, Tatiana used for her quantitative analysis is single-molecule fluorescent in situ hybridization. And in this case, um, it allows us to observe every molecule of RNA and count every molecule of RNA. So, the RNA is is labeled by little pieces of uh, complementary RNA, uh, and each piece... Is fluorescently labeled. And when we add like about more than 40 of these little pieces going along the RNA, uh, then we can see single molecules. And each dot here is a single molecule. When we get to the germ plasm, you can see it's very crowded there. And so here we are counting the molecules pretty much on the basis of how much fluorescent intensity there is, knowing what the single molecule intensity is. So, this was really exciting for me, because the first time we were able to count the molecules. So, we know now how many molecules um, for uh, nanos are in the... um, uh, in the soma, and we get a concentration measurement of this, too. But most important is to compare uh, this future soma, uh, where the RNA is localized, and indeed, I should say, all of this RNA is, gets degraded as soon as the germ cells form, and only the RNA, which is in the germ plasm, which gets incorporated into the germ cells, will persist. So, what is the concentration in the soma? And so, only 3% of the total RNA localizes to this region, which is about 0.1% of the volume of the embryo. And that leads to an incredible enrichment of this RNA. And that is the first um, point, which also suggests that the RNAs are also assembling into Um, clusters, and that these clusters um, are similarly to how... what we were observing with the proteins, are now having a much higher concentration and can perhaps organize in different ways because they have a higher concentration. So, if you just think from a biochemical point of view, if you have molecules in solution, it's going to be very hard for those molecules to find each other. But when you concentrate them... Very different biology can happen. Very different interactions between molecules can happen. And that's what I'm going to tell you about. When molecules are in a dense space, it is actually very hard to determine whether their co-localization is meaningful or whether it just happens because they are close. And so, uh, we had to develop a way of determining, in this dense space of the germ plasm the co-localization of molecules. And what we did for this is we looked at the um, peak of fluorescence of uh, two proteins or two RNAs or an RNA and a protein, and then we measured the distance of those two peaks. And our rationale was, if that distance is pretty constant, then these two uh, molecules are co-localized, However, if the distance varies a lot, then the two molecules, despite the fact they are in the same region, uh, they are not co-localized. And uh, this um, measurement can be uh, explained by the person correlation coefficient, a la costas. And uh, the... um, and I will show you that later. So, we can look at protein-protein, And when we look at Vasa and Oscar here, and we just look at... with structural illumination uh, microscopy, which allows us a resolution that is uh, very um, good and close to uh, super-resolution microscopy, um, we can see that pretty much even with just our eyes uh, here, without... formula, that pretty much all of the proteins are co-localized. However, when we looked at different RNAs, what we see is that um, some RNAs seem to be co-localized quite nicely, like cyclin B with VASA here, but then other RNAs, like germ cellless, um is not really uh, that well-localized, co-localized with VASA. And so, here is the Pearson correlation coefficient that I was talking about, one is the maximal. That would be perfect correlation. And so, we had to, of course, have a positive control for that. And the positive control would be how well would the same molecule come out? And, of course, the same molecule should be totally co-localized. And so, what we did for this is we took the same RNA and labeled it with two different colored probes and then compared those peaks. And this gives us the optimum. And, of course, it isn't one... Um, because there's always some variation. But that is basically telling us this is as good as co-localization could be. We also had a negative control, and this is CCR4. We know CCR4 is a little bit enriched um, in, the, in, in the germ-plasm region, but uh, it is clearly not localized, and you see there's a lot of distributions, and it is not uh, a, constant, a constant distance from VASA. So, everything else now we're measuring with regard of VASA as the... our guide for the center of the germ granule. And so, you are not surprised to see Oscar protein being close to 100% co-localization, as good as our positive control. Um, they are uh, partners, and so um, they are together. What was really surprising, and... Um, I want to take you back for a moment. Uh, So, for years, we had been doing in situ hybridization um, with uh, more traditional probes and all these RNAs looked identical. They were always enriched at the posterior pole, and that was like we called them germplasm RNAs. And in situ's were being done by EM, and they showed that they were actually localized in the granules. But so, the big surprise was, when we looked at how the RNAs related to the peaks of Vasa, what we realized was that they were organized. Some RNAs, like cyclin B and nanos RNA, were more in the center while other RNAs, like germ cell S or PGC, were more at the periphery. But they had a very precise um, orientation, and and there was... they're still co-localized. It's not random, because they have a specific position. This suggested to us that the RNAs were organized with respect to the proteins, and it also told us that different RNAs, which formed clusters of higher intensity, which told us that there were multiple of these molecules, that these RNA clusters were organized, and the same RNAs were obtained different positions. And to just uh, illustrate this, so, the different RNAs can all be in one granule, and so we asked the question, um, if we just now uh, draw this uh, just for the RNAs, we can actually triangulate and get an idea of how the RNAs relate to each other. Important for this localization is the 3' UTR of the RNAs. Uh, So, that is how they get to the posterior pole. Uh, The 3' UTR is also important to keep the RNA stable in the germplasm and lead to their degradation in the soma. And finally, and this is still a mystery for us, the 3' UTR also determines when the RNAs are translated. So, nanos is translated in the germplasm, but... Germ cell is is translated as soon as the germ cells form, and cyclin B is actually not translated until the germ cells reach the gonad. So, what is it about the 3' UTR that, first of all, gets them localized, and what is it that gets it organized and translated uh, at particular times? I do have an answer, or I think I do have an answer, for the first question. I still don't have an answer, really, for the second question. So, Here's a model of RNA localization. And the model of RNA localization can be described as a zip code model, where the RNA... in this case, the 3' UTR... as we know, most RNAs are localized through their 3' UTR. There are a few exceptions. Where the RNA has a particular tag, which would be a particular sequence or a particular structure, and that specific proteins bind to that tag, and they then bring the RNA uh, to their location. So, the specific sequence, like illustrated here, has really not panned out very well. There are sequence-specific regions in the 3' UTR that bound by sequence-specific RNA binding proteins, but those turned out mostly to be involved in RNA translational regulation. The second model that uh, proteins... specific proteins bind to structures in the RNA has been shown for a number of examples, and that's often when RNA is packaged into particles, which are then transported uh, in a microtubule-dependent way. For example, oscar getting to the posterior pole, or bicoid getting to the anterior pole. But our RNAs do not seem to behave this way what we think how we can describe those clusters best is by the RNAs organizing with themselves. Because we have no evidence that there's any specificity in the protein. Because I showed you, the RNAs were organized, but the proteins, Oscar and Vasa, they were everywhere, right? They didn't have a specific localization. And so, what we would like to propose, and we have some evidence for this, um, that the different RNAs self-associate. The proteins are required um, for them to allow to be enriched, but then it is... the specificity comes really from this specific sequences of the RNAs. And that's where the specificity problem can really be solved, because, remember, there are 200 RNAs. Are we going to have 200 specific RNA binding proteins? I don't know where they are, because we haven't found them. And so, in this case, if the specificity comes from the RNA, we can really solve that problem. So, how could specificity come from the RNA? Now, think back at the high concentration. So, when RNAs are in high concentration, and when they have then a chance to engage in trance interaction rather than in cis interactions, as in kissing and pairing, where loops can com- connect in trance, or where stem loops or sequences are, are, are can open up or find each other in trance, where two molecules then can interact. Um, that would be a mechanism of specificity which would be inert in the particular RNA. And so, um, what... the model we're working with at the moment is that, initially, the proteins, because Oscar, Vasa, Aubergine, Tudor... they localize and start forming germplasm before the RNAs even get there. Um, So, they would be involved in seeding the RNA um, onto this protein uh, scaffold... And then the RNAs would self-organize. What is nice about this is it explains, for example, how you can make a large granule if you have a lot of RNA, and that's where we see a correlation. Uh, so, the, the more RNA is present, the larger the granule, and those granules are usually also in the center. This model, despite the fact it seems a little odd, because we are so protein-focused often in our ways, is not um, the... Um, only uh, existing for uh, the germline of Drosophila. And there are some really neat uh, recent uh, examples in other systems where people have now discovered these RNA RNA interactions. As important. So, for example, in this filamentous fungus, uh, Amy Gottfelder's lab has shown uh, that certain RNAs in green and purple here, and blue is the DNA, are self-associating, and uh, she can actually show that this is due to the RNA structures that are recognizing each other. Similarly, uh, Ron Vale's lab has shown that RNAs, which have uh, these uh, disease-associated repeats, um, where, uh, in the disease, the repeats are longer, of certain nucleotides being repeated again and again, that they... when the repeats get very long, the RNAs can also self-associate. So, perhaps um, this is a more general model of how these specific RNAs can engage with the granules and where the granules, the protein part of the granule, is providing a scaffold for these interactions. So, I want to summarize this part of my presentation. Uh, I first uh, want to tell you that drosophila germ granules have physical properties similar to other membraneless granules. Uh, I told you that they are also more structured. Uh, and uh, this, of course, tells us more about a granule which has many components and which is acting in vivo. And obviously, the granules will change. So, for example, the cytoplasmic granules we already know has other components than the nuclear granule, which are coexisting at the same time. Aubergine and Tudor are not in the nuclear granule. They're only found in the cytoplasmic granule. Only the cytoplasmic granules seem to assemble these RNAs that I just showed you. We do not see the same RNAs with the nuclear granule. The granules are the site of protein and RNA localization. And the RNA localization is really what makes the functional aspect here. Um, the germ granules affect the RNAs and code all the proteins with the important function for germ cells. And uh, so, the germ plasm is just allowing them to be concentrated and then translated there. And finally, uh, the germ granules are organized... Um, in uh, these homotypic clusters. And these RNA-RNA clusters are perhaps a new way of thinking about how specificity can be achieved uh, for um, specific RNAs to organize within a granule. And it may also be... uh, perhaps give us some idea of how they are controlled, either to be prevented from translation or activated for translation, because that's, of course, at the end, their functional aspect. And so, with that, I want to thank, really, um, the major contributors. So, Tatjana Trek uh, has really contributed greatly to our analysis of RNA and the granule biophysics. Uh, and uh, those experiments were also uh, conducted, uh, many of them, by Katie Kissler. Um, with support from Thomas Hurt. Uh, I would also really like to mention our collaborators, Timothy Lyonet, um, who um, was at Genelia Farms and now joined us at NYU, and uh, Harry Schroff, uh, who uh, allowed us to use his uh, structural illumination microscop- microscope, and they really contributed a lot in the analysis uh, of these granules, and obviously coarse. And uh, some of the drawings that uh, I showed were made by Alexei Soshev. And finally, there have been many people throughout the years uh, who have worked in my lab on RNA. And uh, obviously, uh, all of this couldn't be done without the funding agencies. And so, I thank you very much uh, for your attention. And I hope you join me for the second part, where I will be telling you more about how germ cells form and um, some of the aspects of how they become different from the soma and how they make sure that they don't uh, undergo the same deadly fate of the soma. Thank you very much for listening.